Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Would you turn with me to, uh, if you have your pew Bible there, uh, the blue book, it's page 223. Ruth is a small book, it's kind of hard to find. Uh, If you're in your own Bibles, find Joshua, Judges, uh, toward the front, and then Ruth is between Judges and 1 Samuel. This morning, because of this passage, uh, we're going to read it kind of slowly and talk about it as we go, because the original uh, intention, it seems to be, of the author is for us to kind of build the suspense of what's going to happen next, and so we'll... We'll try to do that as we go through the passage. We've been in Ruth for several weeks. It began with the terrible loss of Naomi, uh, moving to Moab with her husband and two boys. The boys marry Moabite girls. Then her husband dies and her two sons die. And she comes back and proclaims her emptiness and brokenness. But it's against the backdrop of Ruth's magnificent confession in chapter 1 that your God will be my God, your people will be my people. A very familiar passage. So she returns to Israel empty, and yet Ruth the Moabitess is with her. And this is underscored in the text. And we're made to wonder, what's that going to mean? What is it, what's going to happen with Ruth, who's so splendidly confessed uh, her faith in God? Chapter 2, Ruth goes to the fields to glean. We hear about this guy Boaz to begin with, and then we have seen the providence of God that she happened to come into Boaz's field, this man who's related to them and, and may do them good. And we see the, abundant, uh, the abundance that Boaz pours out for Ruth, the goodness that he shows to her. And so we're made to wonder what's going to happen with this relationship. So we come to the end of the uh, planting of, of the harvest season, and she's still with her mother-in-law. And now we have, we have this uh, plot that is hatched by Naomi. A lot of opinions about this. Some people think that Naomi was uh, hasty, unbelieving, impetuous, totally endangered her daughter. It was an f- absolute foolish thing to do, but thankfully God used it for good. Others think it was bold and daring and showed un- ingenuity an ingenuity that God used at the time. And so it's a, it's a, so what she does is very uh, controversial. And, and what she tells her daughter-in-law to do has uh, sexual innuendo attached to it that has made us wonder for 2,000 years what exactly happened on the threshing floor that night. Let us pray as we come to the passage. Lord, we thank you for this 
portion of your word which you've revealed to us, this that happened so many years ago, and yet you preserved it so that we would live more in your will, understand you more, be like you, live out your steadfast love to one another, even as Boaz and Ruth lived out your steadfast love. We pray, Father, that you would bless us and instruct us and equip us by your Holy Spirit and your word. Thank you that you promised to do it and will do it in Jesus' name. Amen. We all will find ourselves, have found ourselves, and will find ourselves in very difficult circumstances, highly pressured circumstances, highly tempting circumstances. That's what Naomi and Ruth, I mean, that's what Boaz and Ruth found themselves in. And we're going to explore this a bit and show how the storyteller, as he's unfolding the healing process, the restoration process for Naomi, who's lost everything, he keeps underscoring it's God's faithful love manifested in his people. It's people showing that the word is hesed, it's unfailing love. It's all through the Psalms and all through the Old Testament. It's one of the signal words that describes God's character. And in this book, the Hesed love of God is proclaimed to be in these people as they operate and show that love to one another. And it's through their actions that Naomi is restored. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise and challenge for us that as we show that kind of steadfast love to one another and to a dark world, we can be agents constantly of amazing restoration of relationships and lives. And we can build a community that is marked by this hesed, this unfailing love. Now, as she begins, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. When she speaks of rest here, you can go back to chapter 1, where she actually prays about Orpah and Ruth, her two daughter-in-laws. May the Lord deal kindly with you, and the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So when when she's seeking rest for her daughter, she's seeking what one commentator says is home and a husband. Okay? Home and a husband. He said, really, that translation might be better because that's what she's about is to give you the rest that a woman would know to be safe and protected in a home under the care of a husband. Neither of them has that now, and they are endangered, and they are insecure in the world. Secondly, when the first mention, we'll get to this again, the mention of the threshing floor is sexually charged. A woman going to a threshing floor generally meant, in that culture, a prostitute going to the threshing floor. Because men would stay with the grain at night to protect it, the prostitutes would go to the threshing floor and offer their services. Uh, In Hosea chapter 9, verse 1, as God is accusing Israel of 
spiritual idolatry. He talks about their whoredom and how you multiply your prostitution on many threshing floors. Just, it's that standard, it's that understood. So right off the bat, the mention of threshing floor and her going there causes some questions in our minds. Then she says, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. That's a good translation, far better than NIV that has finest clothes. As though she's kind of putting on her bridal gown, some have thought. As though she's putting on her best clothes for him. Basically, the the cloak is the normal outward cover. And actually, these three words are used of David when he ended his mourning time over the death of his son... And it says that he washed, he put this uh, perfume, he anointed himself, and he put on his simla, his cloak. And so many commentators think at this point, what she's doing is ending her mourning time over the loss of her husband, Mechelon, and she is now presenting herself to uh, Boaz as, I'm now back in the world. Available. I'm available for normal life. I'm available for marriage. And that's probably the best interpretation of what she's indicating here for her to do. This may indicate also, because the question arises, why didn't Boaz do something before now? And that's one reason, perhaps, is that she had her mourning clothes on all of this time. And that would mean, of course, an inappropriate time for him to uh, approach her about marriage. Also, as we'll find out, he knew he was not the first in line as a redeemer for her. And so that could be a reason he was hanging back. Also, he may have been as old as Naomi and he just thought, I'm not going to make the poor girl marry somebody like me. You know, um, We don't know completely. Uh, but which we wonder, why didn't Naomi just approach the elders? Why didn't she just approach him in a different way? Why this? Apparently, uh, she thought that it would be good for them in a dramatic way, in a kind of romantic way, but certainly dramatic way, to say, for, for Ruth to say, here I am, you're the man that I would like to have. Will you have? And, of course, he talks later about the fact that she could have gone after younger men. Uh, She could have had, apparently she was free to have anybody, but she has come to him. And it's very likely that she, uh, being won over by the character and kindness of spending these weeks working for him and seeing him in in interaction, uh, that was why they thought, we're not sure who the Redeemer properly is, but... Here's the man. We're going to go for him in this dramatic way. Now, the words, though, that are used uh, following this, verse 3, Wash therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Just to say that, we're already thinking not so good thoughts, okay? A woman going down to the threshing floor. What are you talking about here, Naomi? Help me here. I hope you're not saying what I think you're saying. He says, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Okay, so wants him to be fully satisfied, at his best, feeling good about life and happy. Of course, the uh, 
harvest time was a time of joy and celebration. Verse 4, But when he lies down, know or observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Those all are sexually charged phrases. To uncover is used 24 times in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 as a warning not to uncover relatives. And it names all these relatives that you're not to have sexual relations with. But it doesn't describe sexual relations. It says you shall not uncover the nakedness of this or that person. So the word uncover is immediately associated with uh, sexual activity. The fact that it says to uncover his legs, okay? It may be a translation of feet, uh, and the only other time this word is used is in Daniel 10.6, and clearly it refers to legs. But there's some question as to whether he's saying legs or feet, but I would opt for, for legs. And, of course, the question is, well, how much of his legs do you uncover uh, to lie beside him? And the storyteller is purposely making us think about this, making us wonder, making us a bit uncomfortable with the situation. And then to lie down, of course, we see that as a common term to lie with someone uh, sexually. So this this is, is sexually charged, and the point of it is to show that they were in, they were put in a difficult circumstance. They were put in a tempting circumstance. And the question is arising, as we've been talking about hesed and covenant faithfulness and covenant love, how will they handle this? Especially other things come to mind. Lot's daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed and they lose their husbands, his two daughters uh, contrive to get him drunk and sleep with him. And they give birth to children, one of whom is Moab. So there's a history of a woman who's the ancestor of all the Moabites getting someone drunk and then sleeping with him. Somebody's going to be thinking about that when they read this passage. Or they may be thinking of Tamar in Genesis 38, who in a similar circumstance is her, her, her husband dies and then the brother doesn't do his duty to marry her so that she can have children. And eventually, after her father-in-law loses his wife, she dresses up as a prostitute and allures him. And from that uh, union, one of Christ's heirs is born. And it's listed, all of that, in Matthew to show Christ shows grace to sinners. Beautiful thing that Tamar is mentioned in the very genealogy of Christ. Embedded in the genealogy is this is all about mercy. (laughs) All about God's kindness to sinners. So these kinds of things, for anybody that has a knowledge of of these stories and all the people listening to this story do, they're wondering, what are they going to do? Are they going to be faithful? Are they going to carry out faithful love? Regardless of what you think about Naomi, maybe she wasn't wise. Maybe the boldness of it was was overstepping boundaries. But nonetheless, for Ruth, trying to obey her mother-in-law, just like Esther was obeying her uncle Mordecai and endangered herself to go into the king unasked for, and she knew she could be killed as a result. 
In a similar way, Ruth is humbly, obediently following her mother-in-law and putting herself in the hands of God as she seeks to fulfill uh, what, what Naomi has told her to do. So, here's the scripture saying that people find themselves, for whatever reason, to be in very difficult circumstances, potentially compromising circumstances, tempting circumstances, and yet the grace of God is available to enable them to show Hesed love in the midst of circumstances. That's encouraging. That's very encouraging. So, now, he says, she says, when you uncover his feet, he will tell you what to do. May mean that she's not sure if he's the redeemer or if someone else is the redeemer. They're not sure of the hierarchy or the connections and all this. So she kind of leaves and says, he's going to tell you what to do. Which indicates, by the way, that she's not really going after sexual uh, that she's not suggesting for her to do anything sexually with or for him that night. That's not what she's suggesting. She, as we'll see, the action that she takes was clearly interpreted by Boaz to be uh, an action of offering herself for marriage. It was an action to say, will you marry me? And that's what Naomi intended. That's what Naomi thought she would be communicating by uncovering his feet and lying down. The uncovering his feet, simply so that later when it got cooler in the night, he'd wake up. (laughs) I'm cold. Reaches for the covers. Finds her lying there. And the very position of lying there and offering herself in this way would be to say, Will you marry me? Will you marry me? So, uh, but, you see, in that context of a pure desire and a desire to be married, there is this kind of complication and difficulty that they will be thrown together in very irregular circumstances, sleeping together at night, perhaps alone in an isolated threshing floor. And the audience probably squirmed with fear and maybe excitement. What in the world is going to happen here? So trying to give you a little feel for how this came across to the original audience and how it should come across to us. Ruth replies in verse 5, All that you say I will do. So, verse 6, She went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, quietly is the word here, and uncovered his feet or legs and lay down. So she did, it's, it describes it exactly as uh, Naomi had told her. And so what happens? And by the way, the whole book is turning right now. The whole uh, climax of the drama is right now at this moment. What's going to happen when he wakes up? So the whole book turns right here. So at midnight, the man was startled. Probably by the cold. He turned over. It means that he may have groped for cover. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. It may mean someone lay at his feet. Because they didn't have a, a, a neutral word to describe it. And since we know it's a woman, the, the narrator used the word woman. But he may have just thought, someone's at my feet. What in the world? Okay, That would startle him again, no doubt. He's startled by the cold and then he's doubly startled because there's someone laying there. And, of course, naturally, he says, who are you? 
Now, remember what she's supposed to do? At that point, Naomi said, he will tell you what to do. And here's the amazing thing. At this point, in fact, it was not so. It's Ruth who tells Boaz what to do. This is rather remarkable uh, because here's a servant demanding that the boss marry her, a Moabite making the demand of an Israelite, a woman making the demand of a man, a poor person making the demand of a rich man. And so at this point, we're almost in awe. Ruth, what, what are you doing? What are you saying? Now, I think Ruth at this point wants not to be misunderstood. That would be my best guess. And here's the thing. She's not saying anything different than what she's doing. It shows that her presence there, lying at his legs, either right beside him or perpendicular to his feet, we can't fully know that. But lying there was a statement in itself, a kind of proposal to be his wife. And her words are merely putting, verbalizing what she's already said with her actions. And so she answers, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wing or wings, probably best wing, but it's the corner of the garment. Spread your wing over your servant for you are a redeemer. And we know from the culture that this was a common way to indicate that you were taking a woman for a wife to spread your garment over her to show that sexually now she is protected and covered and now you will uh, give yourself to her and you will have her as your wife. So it's a common uh, indicator of marriage. We'll look again at another passage in Ezekiel that refers to this. Um, and so spread your wings over your servant. And you'll recall back in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, You uh, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth. Repay you for all the good that you have done to Naomi. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Same word, as we've already pointed out. So here she is saying, you know, you said about the Lord, my being under his wing. How about you doing that for me? How about you and your love to me and your marrying me and putting me under your wing by marriage? Extend the love and mercy of God to me in that way. She's asking him in a sense to answer his own prayer. May the Lord extend and put his wing over you. And she's like, how about you? How about you being the human agent for that for me and marrying me? For you are a redeemer. We'll talk more about that word redeemer next week. Uh, shows that he had a special responsibility, though he was down the line a ways as he refers to this uh, later. But she appeals to him in this way. You are a redeemer. Will you take me as your wife? And notice he understands clearly both her actions and her statement. He had no question about what she intended from, from being there. Even though there are these sexual innuendos, it's clear that the author intends us to know nothing at all happened. They acted in purity and faithfulness to each other, but it was a charged situation. 
and it had associations that would not be good. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, he calls this Moabite. You have made this last kindness, hesed, greater than the first, that is the first that you showed to Naomi, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And many have said, whether for love or money, (laughs) you've not sought the younger men. And the indication is that she could have sought a younger man and been more likely to have children, be more likely to have significance and prominence in the community in one way because she would have children. But she was coming to him because of his character and kindness. And she was coming to him because she knew that he would be better able to provide for her and Naomi. She's thinking about Naomi here as well. And that's part of why he... Uh, has says something so amazing that this kindness in coming to me is greater than your first kindness to Naomi. It's almost hyperbole. It probably reflects his amazing gratitude. It probably reflects the humility of this wonderful man, this hero who takes up her cause, that he was struck that she would love him and care for him. What character he has. What an amazing man Boaz is. And my dad was born in Boaz, but I didn't know that that's what the word meant you know, early on. That's back in Sand Mountain, Sand Mountain in Alabama. All right. <clears throat> that's all I thought Boaz was <laughs> at the time. Um, and notice uh, he says, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you. All that you ask. And notice, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, the word, this is very interesting because this word worthy is used of Boaz himself in chapter 2, verse 1. So he is saying of her what the storyteller has said of Boaz. And it's the storyteller's way of saying she is just as magnificent in character as Boaz. They make a great match. Character and character. Sustenance and sustenance. That's what relationships are built on. Not the superficiality of, you know, this pizzazz or that beauty or whatever. It's character. And they both have it. And moreover, it's interesting that This book in the Hebrew Bible, okay, in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't come after Judges. It comes after Proverbs, okay? You're reading in the Hebrew Bible, you hit Proverbs, then you hit Ruth. Proverbs, interesting. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10, a worthy wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. And many think that Ruth then becomes the example of that worthy wife, more precious than jewels, that Boaz found. Because the very same word, excellent, worthy, is used just a few chapters away from each other. It was difficult not to uh, realize that. And then there's the statement in verse 23 that her husband is known in the gates, that she has made him 
famous in the gates. She has helped his uh, dignity and honor in the gates. And it's, you can't see it in the translation, but in verse uh, 11 it says, For all my fellow townsmen, it means literally, you are known in the gates that you're a worthy woman. And so here is the Proverbs 31 woman. And Boaz is embracing her with joy. And he says, I will do all for you that you ask from all my fellow, you are known in the gates that you're a worthy woman. And it's so interesting that uh, her character, she did not build her reputation in this book by trying to be somebody, you know, by associating with the important people. It was her self-effacing embodiment of Israel's covenant standards, her covenant love and kindness and loyalty to this family, especially to Naomi, that won her the praise of everyone. See, Boaz could have, as Daniel Block says, he could have treated her as Moabite trash, scavenging in the garbage cans of Israel. That's what gleaning was like. And then corrupting the people with her whorish behavior, but with true Hesed love of his own, he sees her as a woman equal in status and character to himself. This is really an amazing, amazing moment when this Moabite girl who earlier calls herself a lowly servant, now uses a higher term for servant. And she says, I am uh, Rachel, your servant. I am your match. I'm the one and I'm offering myself to you in particular. So a magnificent scene and a magnificent reaction on the part of Boaz. How... How would we know what he's going to say? Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be offended by her presence? What will he do? And in verse 11, we relax. The whole book is going to to be okay now. Now, there's a little bit more drama. And that comes out in verse 12. Now, it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. And we're all like, oh, man, no. Y'all are supposed to get married. Come on, let's not have anything stand in the way of this. And even though he says, if he will marry you, fine. But if he won't, I'll have you. We're all like saying, no, he's not going to do that. We're just somehow they're going to get together. That's the feeling at this point for the readers. But he does say there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. That word is the word for lodge. Where she used this word in chapter 1, where you lodge, I will lodge. So it's, it has no sexual innuendo. So it's very clear. Lodge here, be safe here. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. In other words, he puts himself under the punishment of God. May God judge me if I will not redeem you. I commit myself to your good. Glorious commitment of Hesed love. I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so she laid his feet until the morning, arose before one could recognize another for her own safety, so there could be no misinterpretation. And he said, likely this means he thought or said to himself, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And by the way, you'll notice in verses 8 and 14 and 16 and 18, it says not... Uh, uh, Ruth or Boaz, but the man, the woman. Now, that doesn't mean like in modern, you know, uh, 
postmodern deconstructionism, you're just like, hey, it says he's the man. You know, that's not the indication. But it probably is underscoring how obscure things were, how incognito the whole thing was. It's just the man and the woman. And it also probably underscores this is a man and a woman lying there together. Uh, it's an interesting little touch on the part of the storyteller. <clears throat> but uh, verse 15, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. She held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Likely that this was 80 pounds. Uh, one fellow living in that area said he saw one woman carrying two 45-pound uh, uh, containers of water. So strong women could do it. And she apparently was a strong woman. Um, she held it. He measured it out, six measures of barley, put it on her, helped her get it up on her shoulders and her, and or her head. And uh, she went out into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She had every confidence when she sent her there, really. And she has every confidence now. She knows this Boaz, either by reputation or whatever, and she's convinced that he will act on her behalf. Most commentators think that this seed was a way to say to Naomi, uh, to show the connection that he had through her, but to more to say, I will take care of everything. This seed is like a sacrament. This seed is like a promise a down payment that I will do everything necessary for you. She sends this abundance home to them. It's a sign of the abundance that she, he will pour out for them. Now, there are several applications. I'm just going to make uh, one this morning, and we're going to talk some more uh, next week. But um, here's the one that I would like to underscore today. And it is this, that... Apparently, the the writer, as he's unveiling the way this Hesed love acted in every circumstance, and he shows it acting in this very difficult circumstance, it is it is set before us then as an example that we must choose to love in difficult circumstances. We must choose faithfulness and righteousness in difficult circumstances. There are times of decision, and Campbell points out that there was a time of decision for Ruth in the first chapter, and there was a time of decision in the second chapter, and here's another one, and chapter 4 has another one, in which men and women are called to act nobly and faithfully in very difficult circumstances. And that's what you and I are called to do, to be faithful and steadfast and unwavering in temptation, in pressure, in loss, in gain, in danger, in tragedy. You and I will be, or have been, but we will be put in every difficult circumstance. You will be put in very tempting circumstances. Ferguson said in his little commentary on Ruth, he says his daughter at a Chinese restaurant in Philadelphia was opening a fortune cookie. And pulled out the fortune, and it read, Never mistake temptation for opportunity. 
Never mistake temptation for opportunity. And how many times we like to interpret, well, here it is, instead of recognizing this is the enemy, this is temptation, I must act nobly and properly in this situation. Certainly Boaz didn't mistake temptation for opportunity. Here's a woman, it's in the middle of the night, I could take advantage of her, I could say anything in the world, she's totally unprotected. But he took it and acted in the most noble way, the most glorious way to commit himself to her and provide for her. You will be given opportunities to sin. They're all around you. They are a keystroke away on your computer, a press of the button on your remote control. They're as close as a conversation that never should have taken place, a look or a thought. God doesn't keep you. He doesn't put us in a bubble. But does He expect us still to manifest His covenant love? Yes. Can we, by the grace of Christ be renewed so in the Holy Spirit that we can make those choices. Yes. And so this story teaches us that this unfailing love, this hesed, can rule the most difficult circumstance. Joseph demonstrated this in resisting the wooing of Potiphar's wife to sleep with him. And in his continued trust in God, when things kept getting worse and worse in his life, the more he tried to do the right thing. And he continued to trust him. Continue to trust him. Continue to put himself in God's hand and act for the good of others. And this acting for the good of others, brothers and sisters, can become the music of your life. A glorious, engaging, powerful song that takes over more and more of the ugly, obnoxious, destructive, clanging and blaring of self by God's grace This can be the mark of every one of us and the mark of this people that we are called to this love in all circumstances. And let me say this. This is called for even and maybe especially in the wake of failure. Sometimes that's the hardest time to believe God. Hardest time to believe in His mercy. Hardest time to renew your sense that I am new in Christ. The Holy Spirit is in me and the deepest part of me pouring forth a river of life in me. God still has a hold of my life. I still can entrust myself to Christ. And that's where more than ever... We entrust ourselves to His forgiveness. We rest in the work of Christ who can and does take away all our sin. He bears our punishment. He brings us into intimate fellowship and acceptance with the Father. And so we continue to rest in His care, rest in His protection, and rest in His promise that all things, even the not-so-good things, will work together for good, even evil men putting to death Jesus Christ. The worst of things done in the history of the world, that worst of things has been turned and used by God to bring the greatest blessing upon the world. Just a major statement of what He's able to do in each of our lives. And so, uh, if He did this in the Old Testament context... We, as we've celebrated in baptism, we are owned by the Holy Spirit of God. 
We're looking back to Christ himself who died for us. We're looking back to the greatest manifestation of this Hesed love, one that in the Old Testament was only contemplated and, and could only be seen in shadows, and now it's blazing bright to burst into our lives for us to welcome it and soak ourselves in it for forgiveness and change and constant uh, uh, nurse, nurturing ourselves and comforting ourselves in it so that we, in turn, will pour ourselves out in Hesed love to others in every circumstance. That's the only way to live, you know. It's the only way to live, to entrust yourself to the love of Jesus Christ and to have that glorious purpose. I'm going to live out that love and, and, and do the greatest good that I can in this world. Let us pray. Lord, we again honor you for uh, such an amazing passage, uh, so rich with uh, color and, and uh, drama, and how it involved these two people uh, so given up to your will, uh, so wanting to please you, uh, this dedicated Moabitess who had so radically given herself and left everything, home and safety and family and nation, to take Yahweh as her God, to entrust her life to Him, and going forth and working and slaving in the fields and, and then obeying her mother-in-law and, and boldly presenting herself to this wise and good and kind man to say, will you marry me? Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these kinds of examples that encourage us that if you did this for her, a pagan worshiper, one who was alienated from God, one who cared nothing for you. And you broke into her life through Naomi's family and Naomi, Naomi's faith herself. And, and you revealed yourself to her and, and drew her to such commitment and, and joyful, sacrificial service. Oh, Lord, how will you not do it for us if we cry out to you and we entrust ourselves through the Lord Jesus Christ? And oh, we thank you for Boaz, this grand hero who provides uh, for Naomi and Ruth and that he partakes of Christ himself. Even as an Old Testament believer, he belonged to Christ and manifested Christ's character even there to those people. No, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed our brother and you say that you're not ashamed to call us brethren and that you are our Redeemer. And whereas it cost Boaz perhaps a good bit of money, you spent your blood for us. You purchased us with your own blood, not with silver and gold. You gave yourself away freely and lavishly so that you might have us, so that we would be your bride forever. Oh, we praise you, King Jesus. What a hero you are, Lord Jesus. We praise you. Enable us to see you taste you, love you, and give ourselves to you. And, O oh Lord, enable us to be like you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. 
Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of 